Turn with me to John 16. John chapter 16. Looking at a very short passage this evening, verses 23 and 24. But looking at what I hope is a very profound truth for all of you. John 16, verses 23 through 24, and we'll be considering enjoying the cross. Give attention to God's holy word. And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask in the name of Christ that you would give us your Holy Spirit that our joy might be full. And we pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. What does it mean to enjoy something? Well, generally, there's, there's two basic ideas when we speak about enjoying something. The first idea is the more common way, probably the, the initial way we think about enjoying something. And the, the basic idea with the, 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 the basic uh, thrust of the first idea is that we like or love something. You may have said once in your life, I enjoy detective stories. I enjoy football. I enjoy history. What we mean when we say that is we like those things. Perhaps we love those things. This is the more common way to speak of enjoying something. Now, there's nothing wrong with this idea. It's okay to like detective stories. It's okay to like football. And it's okay to like history. There's nothing wrong with this idea. In a very real sense, to enjoy the cross means just this. I love the cross of Christ. This is Paul's point in Galatians 6.14. God forbid that I should boast, save in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. There's a second idea, however. The less common idea is the more important for our purposes here. The second idea means to possess something and to benefit from it. And so we can say things like this. I enjoy good health. It doesn't simply mean I like good health. I think all of us like good health. But if you say I am enjoying good health, that means you possess it and you're benefiting from it. You might also have heard that diplomats enjoy immunity from certain legal statutes. When we use the word that way, we mean that the diplomats possess this thing and they benefit from it. It's not just that they like it, but they possess and benefit. The basic idea here is that to enjoy something means to possess it and to benefit from it. 
Both ideas are present in the New Testament idea of joy and rejoice. They're both present. But one is based on the other. We love the cross of Christ because we possess it by faith and enjoy the benefits of it. This is the other half of Galatians 6.14. Christ says, God forbid that I should boast, save in the cross of Christ Jesus my Lord, by whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. Paul boasts in the cross of Christ because he has learned the benefit of the cross of Christ. Now, benefits are like rights. You have certain civil rights. Benefits are very similar to rights. They are given to be used or exercised. We may possess rights, but if we never exercise them, we can never really enjoy them. Likewise, the benefits of the cross confer certain rights privileges upon Christians that are meant to be exercised. It is in the exercise of our rights that we enjoy the benefits of the cross. It is in the exercise of our rights as Christians that we enjoy the benefits of the cross. And so, how do we enjoy the cross? What are the special benefits that the cross has purchased? And what are the rights that the cross grants to us? The exercise of which is the enjoyment of the cross. What does it mean to enjoy the cross? In this passage, we're going to learn the primary way that we enjoy the cross. And quite simply, that is prayer. Prayer is the way to enjoy the cross. As we look at this passage, we're going to see, we're going to notice three things. The first is the effect of the cross. The second is the benefit of the cross. Then the third is the enjoyment of the cross. The effect of the cross, the benefit of the cross, and the enjoyment of the cross. Verse 23, we're going to, we're going to divide it in half. Uh, 23a, that's the effect of the cross. And then 23b, beginning with most assuredly, is the benefit of the cross. And then verse 24 is enjoying the cross. And so we begin with the effect of the cross. Notice that our Lord begins this tiny little section with, in that day, you will ask me, nothing. When Christ refers to that day, generally he's referring to the completion of his work. He's referring to the completion of his work of mediation. This uh, has two aspects. It has his humiliation and exaltation. The humiliation of Christ began with his birth and incarnation, and it went through the whole series of his life, culminating in his cross. The exaltation began with his resurrection from the dead, 
and it culminated in his crown at the Father's right hand. And so when Christ refers to that day, he's referring to the completion of his work of redemption. Philippians 2.8 speaks about the Lord's humiliation. It says that he was found in form of a man, he was found in the form of a servant, and being found in the form of a servant, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And then Philippians 2.9 speaks about his exaltation. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. The humiliation is referred to in John 12. Turn just a few pages. John 12, verse 27. Christ is uh, speaking, as it were, praying. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. He's speaking about the hour of his crucifixion. The, The events are moving in the gospel such that the cross is just over the horizon. Christ knows this, and his soul is now troubled. Because the cross was a shameful death. The cross is not something that you would seek after. But Christ, as he says in that verse, it was for this very purpose that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Christ said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world is cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And as John writes, signifying by what death he would die. The exaltation of Christ was also necessary. Matthew 26, 64, there's there's many other passages that uh, speak to this. Matthew 26, 64, he's being tried by the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is accusing him. Verse 62, the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, it is, as have you, it is as you have said, nevertheless I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven, referring to his exaltation and the culmination of his work. Now returning to John 16, in general, that's what verse 23 is talking about. But in the immediate context... Christ has something more in view. He has the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Remember the context that Christ has just been teaching the disciples. Um, Chapter uh, 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is good to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Skipping down to verse 13, however, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. 
And so Christ, when he says, in that day, is referring to the completed work of mediation, but even more than that, the outpoured Holy Spirit. The poured out Holy Spirit is the reward of the finished work of Christ. Christ, when he took on our human nature, suffered and died to earn a reward. The reward that he earned was the right to distribute the Holy Spirit to whom he will. This is what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 32. He says, Christ whom you have crucified has been exalted, and this is the Holy Spirit that you both now see and hear. Uh, he, well, just turn there. Uh, Acts two thirty-two. <laughs> This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Notice, enthronement, reception of the Holy Spirit, pouring it out upon mankind. That's what Peter is referring to. John 7, verse 39, the same idea is present. John 7.39, the gift of the Holy Spirit is the reward or the effect of the cross of Christ. Verse 37 in John 7, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers, uh, rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. Listen carefully. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The glorification of Christ is the condition for the Holy Spirit to be poured out. So Christ says, in that day. He also, further, in Uh, Verse 23a, in that day you will ask me nothing. Very interesting statement, isn't it? You will ask me nothing. In the day that you've completed your redemption, yes. We will not ask Christ anything. Uh, Sorry, before we get ahead. uh, As I've mentioned, this refers to the day of Christ's exaltation and power, the reward of his cross. Hebrews 12.2 says, that Christ endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Christ had his eyes on the reward, therefore he was able to endure the cross and is now seated at the right hand. Now what is that joy that was set before Christ? The joy that was set before Christ is you and me. The joy that Christ was looking towards was the redemption of his elect. Proverbs 8, 31 through 30 says that Christ's eternal wisdom in the work of creation was daily with God and was his delight, and he rejoiced among the sons of men. Psalm 22, verse 22 says that after his cross, Christ's reward is to come into the midst of his brethren and to proclaim the name of his Father. You and I are the joy that Christ was working towards. 
That's why he went to the cross, and that's why he pours out the Holy Spirit. Now, he says at the end of 23, you will ask me nothing. This indicates complete reconciliation between the Father and his people. When Christ finishes his work, he returns to the right hand of the Father. And until Christ returns into the Holy of Holies, there is no access to the Holy of Holies. And so you see the disciples throughout the Gospels asking Christ. They're always going to Christ. Explain this to us. We don't understand this. What are you talking about? What does this mean? Verse 19 of the chapter that we're in. Jesus knew that they desired to ask him about what he was talking about. Christ is saying, when my work is finished, you will ask me nothing. Because you will be fully reconciled to the Father. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, very important passage for the cross. Ephesians 2, 14 through 18. Notice how Paul connects access to the Father and the cross of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God. Notice the purpose of Christ in the cross is not to bring us to himself alone, but it is to bring us to God through him to reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. He came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near, for through him we have access by one spirit to the Father. So you see that the effect of the cross is access to the Father's presence. This is why Christ says, in that day you will ask me nothing. Because you will have immediate access to the Father through faith in me. As I mentioned, this is a shift in the disciples' relationship with the Father and with Christ. John 16, 19 is just one example of this. You read the Gospels, the disciples are constantly asking Christ, explain this parable to us. What does this mean? Teach us how to pray. We don't know what's going on. Explain it to us. All throughout the Gospels. Christ now makes a shift and says, when I've finished my work, you will ask me nothing. As a result of the cross, they will no longer need to ask Christ. They will have direct access to the Father. Understand here, brothers and sisters, just at this point, there are many effects of the cross. The cross effected many, many things. The primary effect of the cross is access to the Father by faith. Look at Hebrews 10, verses 19 and 20. Hebrews 10, verses 19 and 20. We've seen this already in the Hebrews series. The great spiritual reality of our religion is that, brethren, we have boldness 
to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated through, uh, for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. Boldness of access to the Father. Now let me, let me uh, just deal with what might be an objection here or what might be a confusion here. Christ says, you will ask me nothing. And when his work is finished, he says, you're not going to need to ask me. You can go to the Father directly. This might raise the question, well, is it appropriate for us today to pray to Christ, to pray directly to the Son? It is appropriate to pray to Christ and to pray directly to the Holy Spirit because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are God Almighty. They are objects of worship, and they deserve our devotion and worship as they are God. However, if you pay careful attention to the New Testament, the ordinary order of prayer is what Christ teaches in the Lord's Prayer. He says, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven. If you look at Paul's prayers in the New Testament... To the best of my knowledge, there may be one that I'm, that I'm not remembering, but to the best of my knowledge, every time Paul records a prayer, he prays directly to the Father and offers his prayers to the Father. This is the ordinary way that we are to pray to the triune God. We are reconciled to the Father through the mediation of the Son, and we pray by the power of the Spirit. Now, you can pray to Jesus. He is God Almighty. But ordinarily, we pray to the Father through Jesus. And so, this is the effect of the cross. Heaven is open to you. You have boldness of access to him. Let me just give you one encouragement, especially the way that Hebrews talks about the boldness of access. That word that's translated boldness means freedom of speech. That's what the Greek word literally means. Now, I know sometimes in prayer... One of the great hindrances for our prayers is that I don't know what to say. I, I, don't, I don't have the right words. I can't pray the way the pastor prays. I can't pray the way the theologian prays. I can't pray the way the elder prays. I can't pray the way dad prays. I can't pray the way that my husband prays. I can't pray the way my wife prays. And so not having the right words can often be a great hindrance to our prayers. Notice the benefit of the cross. You have freedom of speech in heaven. Nobody can limit what you say to your father if you go with sincere and humble faith. Say whatever's on your heart. He already knows it. He's not going to be surprised by it. You have freedom of access to the father in prayer. Well, that's the effect of the cross. Now we have the benefit of the cross, and we've gotten into that just a little bit just now. The benefit of the cross then is answered prayer. Look at what he says in the second half of verse 23. In that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Whatever you ask him in my name, he will give it to you. The first thing we need to notice is that this benefit... It's, it's beyond our comprehension. It's, it's greater than anything we could deserve or imagine. 
that the God of all the universe who brought creation into existence by simply saying, let there be, answers your prayers. He hears you and receives your prayers. This is beyond our comprehension. That's why Christ says in, in the King James, this is another place where I think the King James is better, verily, verily, most assuredly, amen and amen. When Christ says that, he's about to teach us something that is astounding, that is unbelievable on its own. So Christ says amen and amen. This benefit is beyond our comprehension. There's a great example of this benefit in the story of Hezekiah. Don't turn there, but it's in uh, Isaiah 38 and 39. You remember the story. Hezekiah is there in Jerusalem. The Assyrians come. The Rabshaki, the general of the Assyrian army. At that time, Assyria was a world empire. They had the full might. You, you might think of the Assyrian uh, military industrial complex. They were the equivalent of the American military empire at that time. They've come and surrounded Jerusalem. They're going to take it over. They're threatening Hezekiah. They're blaspheming God. And Hezekiah then takes Isaiah and the priests. They go into the temple and they pray. And then God's response is very interesting. God responds to the Assyrians and he says, the daughter of Zion has shaken her head at you. She has despised you. What is Isaiah saying? The Assyrians are mightier than Judah, but Judah has access to the one that's mightier than Assyria. God heard the prayers of Hezekiah, and in Hezekiah humbling himself and praying, he despised all the might of the Assyrians. Well, this benefit is beyond comprehension. It's, it's, it's incredible. But it's also qualified. Look at what Christ says. There's two qualifications to this benefit. <coughs> Whatever you ask the Father in my name. First off, he says, if you ask the Father. This is very similar to the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. This means praying unto God and in Calvin's language, as a propitiated father. What does that mean, a propitiated father? A father who's not angry. A father who will welcome you with open arms. A father who is for you, who loves you, who wants to bless you, who is on your side. That's the father that we approach. And so Christ says, when you pray to the father... <coughs> This is a very important aspect to our prayers. Sometimes we can make a mistake and pray unto God as if he is not our father. We make this mistake when we pray thinking that our prayers is what forgives us of our sins. We pray thinking that our prayers need to be meritorious. Well, that's not the kind of prayer that Christ is speaking about. Christ is speaking after my finished work. When all of your sins have been atoned for, when your conscience has been cleansed by my blood, when full freedom of speech is given to you into the heavenly realms, pray to your Father. 
He loves you. He did not spare his only begotten son. He is your father. Pray unto him as such. To call God our father is one of the effects of the gospel. It's a sign of true saving faith. To look upon God as our father. Romans 8, 31 and 32, I just quoted it. Uh, James 1, 5 is another passage like this. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives freely, with no rebukes. If you lack something, God will give it without chastising you, without upbraiding you. You know, many of us have had earthly fathers. In some ways, my father was like this. Perhaps your father was like this. You're doing something, and you screw up, and you go to dad, and he just thunks you on the head and says, why did you do that? What's the matter with you? God doesn't do that. You mess up, he goes to you, or you go to him, and he says, sure, here you go. Be blessed. You pray to the Father, but the second qualification is in my name. Notice what he says. Ask the Father in my name. This means to pray in a way that is agreeable to the will of Christ. Agreeable to the will and the purposes of Christ. It also means for Christ's sake and in reliance on the merits and the virtues and the wisdom and the power and the grace of Christ. To pray in the name of Christ means that we come to the Father not trusting in ourselves. It also means we come not seeking ourselves. We come trusting in Christ and seeking Christ. Because if you've been touched by the gospel of Christ, you've learned Christ is your life. You are not your own life. Whatever Christ chooses to give you is exactly what you need. And so to pray in the name of Christ means these things. Well, what is the will of Christ for your salvation? These are certain prayers that you can pray that God will always answer. Number one, growth in grace. God will always give you more grace for the sake of Christ so that you will grow in the knowledge of Christ. He will always answer that prayer. Mortification and quickening. What do I mean by that? Paul says in Romans chapter 8, if we by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body... Mortification means putting to death our carnal desires. Quickening means walking in the newness and the power of the resurrection in obedience. God will always answer that prayer. Because that's one of the chief purposes for why Christ came. Now there's more, there's more that we could cite that fall into this category. But I think those are the primary ones that we need to focus on. So what would this look like? Uh, 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 So the reason we want to focus on these things is because those are the things that Christ has promised. Here is some uh, USDA choice prime rib for your faith. The only confident way that you have to relate to God is through his promises. The only thing you can rely upon are the things he has promised to do. He might do other things. 
He might do things outside of his promises. He's free to do whatever he wants to do. But you have no confidence that he will do those things. You do have confidence that what he has promised, he will perform. This is what it means to pray in the name of Christ, is to pray the promises of Christ back to him, and there is assurance in the promises. You know, I used to hike on the Appalachian Trail when I was younger. If anyone's been on the AT, you know that um, you can get lost in the woods pretty quick. You get up there just a mile away from the road, and you don't hear any cars. You may not know which way is north, because you're in the middle of the woods, and there's really not a whole lot to guide you except one thing. The Appalachian Trail is marked by a huge white blaze on the sides of the trees. It's about as long as my forearm, big white blaze on the trees. And so as you're hiking down the trail and you look up and you realize, wow, there's a lot of rhododendron around here. I don't know where I am. Oh, there's the blaze. That's the AT. I'll go that way. And you keep following the blazes until you reach your destination. That's what God's promises are. You can't see the end of your life. You can't see the end of the road. You and I, as we walk through this life, are in the middle of the woods, and we can't see 100 feet in front of us, left or right. What we can see are the promises. You follow the promises, and you'll make it to glory. That's why we pray the promises. That's the only thing we have confidence in. Well, that's the will of Christ for your salvation. As I mentioned, in the name of Christ, it's to rely on his merits, his cross, uh, and to pray. Uh, we also trust in uh, his access to the Father. This is a very important piece of prayer. You have freedom of speech to pray unto your Father. Now, if you're like me, you're not going to say the right things, or you're going to say the right things in the wrong way, or you're going to pray for things that you really shouldn't be praying for, because you and I don't know what we need. But here's the grace of Christ. He is the high priest. He is the one who takes your prayer and makes them acceptable. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. Beautiful Trinitarian view of prayer here. Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. Brothers and sisters, I hope that, that you've learned in your life one of our greatest weaknesses is that we just don't know how to pray. Let alone resist temptation, I don't even know how to pray against temptation. That's what Paul's saying. But the Spirit helps. We don't even know what to pray for, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. That's Jesus. Christ is the one who searches the hearts. And as Christ is listening to your prayers... They may be confused and mixed up with the flesh and the spirit and desires and godliness. They're all mixed up in this jumble. And Christ looks down into your heart and says, I can see the heart. That's the mind of the spirit. I'm going to take that one to my father. I'm going to take this one up to heaven. Keep reading. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is. Because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. 
This is what it means to pray in the name of Christ. Trusting in Christ alone. That he will make your prayers acceptable. And when he makes your prayers acceptable, nobody can keep them out. These two qualifications being met, God the Father will answer all of your prayers. That's what John says at the end of his first letter. 1 John 5. First John 5, 14 and 15, John writes, remember what John's purpose is. John is writing this letter so that the people would not sin by departing from God. He, he wants to keep them believing in Christ. And one of the things he uses is answered prayer. This is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Now, what's one way this might look? Well, here's one way this might look. Sickness is a fact of life. You're going to get sick. You have been sick. You will be sick. Some of your sicknesses may be minor, maybe a minor cold. Some of your sicknesses may be almost unto death. Some of your sicknesses, there's going to be at least one sickness that will take you to the grave at the end of your life. How should we pray in those circumstances? Well, this is where the promises help guide your prayers. God has not promised to heal you immediately from your sicknesses. He has promised to strengthen you so that you don't despair in the midst of a sickness. He has promised to grow your faith. He has promised to grow you in grace. He has promised to give you faith to endure whatever is going on while you are sick. And so when we're sick, one of the ways we can use this doctrine is to pray, Lord, if it is your will, heal me of this. But if not, give me the grace to endure. Help me to bear up in this sickness like a Christian. And if you would like to heal me, I would thank you for that, but if not, help me to maintain godliness and piety in the midst of it. God will answer those prayers. Now, here's one other thing, though, especially when it comes to sickness. God has not promised to heal you today of all of your sicknesses. He has promised to heal you of your sicknesses on Resurrection Day. And so you can pray, Lord, deliver me from this sickness. He will answer that prayer because he's promised to answer that prayer. We know for certain at the resurrection. And if he's feeling gracious, he might answer it now. But even if he doesn't, he will deliver you from all your sicknesses at the resurrection. This is how you use these kind of things. Sometimes we get lost in the sauce. And, and we pray, Lord, deliver us from this illness. It's okay to pray for that, but just recognize you don't have any promises for that. You do have promises for godliness, virtue, and uprightness in the midst of suffering. Well, Christ tells us the effect of the cross, 
He tells us the benefit of the cross. In that day you will ask me nothing. But whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. And then in verse 14, he shows us enjoying the cross. Verse 24, sorry. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Christ connects the exercise of this right, prayer to the Father in his name, the exercise of this right as a benefit purchased by the cross for our joy. See what he says? Ask and you shall receive that your joy might be full. If we could summarize this, he says, enjoy the cross by praying. Exercise your rights in the cross by praying. And as you exercise those rights, your joy, your love for the cross will grow. You know, John Calvin, when he speaks about prayer, I I encourage you to read the Institutes, Book 4, Chapter 20, I believe it is, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, where Calvin talks about prayer. And one of the things that Calvin says about prayer is that God has ordained and promised to give us everything that we need through prayer. He says, why would he do this? Why does he make the condition our prayers if he could just give it to us freely? He's the sovereign God. There's nothing that limits him except his own promises. He says, God has done this because he wants to teach us that everything that we need and receive from him comes from his gracious sovereignty and abundance. He wants to teach us to value the things he has given to us as coming from his grace. You know what often happens when you give a kid a toy? In a couple days, they despise the toy because they don't value it. But you tell the kid that you need to get a job and earn the money and then you can buy your own toy, they begin to value it. Likewise, in our prayers, God has ordained it this way so that we would know everything we need comes from him and his grace. Well, what's the application? It's not very profound. Pray and enjoy the cross. The Christian life is incredibly simple. It doesn't mean it's easy, however. Christian life is... Very simple. Doesn't mean it's easy. Sometimes your prayer will flow like Psalm 45. Remember how the psalmist begins? My heart is indicting a good manner. I speak of the things which I've made, touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Sometimes your prayers will flow out of you like carbonated soda out of a can that was shaken too much. Sometimes it will be that way. Other times it will feel like trying to squeeze oil out of a rock. And there will be almost nothing that comes up. Other times, it will be very few words like the tax collector. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's all he said. Other times, your prayer will be more than words can utter. Remember what Paul says in Romans 8. The Holy Spirit with groanings that can't be uttered. But at all times when you pray... The prayer that will be answered 
No matter how many words, no matter how free-flowing they are, no matter the passions or affections that you experience during those prayers, the prayer that is answered will come from a heart of faith going to its Father in the name of the Son with the joy of the Holy Ghost. So pray. Enjoy the cross. It is your right. Your Father is waiting to bless you. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promises. We thank you for the cross of Christ in whom all your promises are yes and amen. Please teach us to pray. Please strengthen our faith. Show us more of the glories and the beauties of Christ that our joy might be full and that as we prepare in this life walking through the thick woods of the world may we meet you face to face and understand that it was all worth it. We pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.